Well, good morning and welcome again as you have joined us online uh, here at South Suburban Christian Church. We're in the middle of our series, When the Spirit Moves, and today's lesson is from Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be reading at verse 22, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, to uh, get your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, as you're doing that, and if you're joining us for the first time today, I want to welcome you as well. Or if you've just come back after a few weeks, thanks for tuning in to us again. Uh, we've been moving through uh, the book of Acts in this series on when the Spirit moves. And during the first few weeks of this series, we spent a great deal of time in the first part of Acts in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we got to sit in and listen to Peter as he preached the first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Uh, we heard him extend the invitation, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and your sins be forgiven. We watched as this new church began to grow, and how one of its most significant and unique marks was that it was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, and to the prayers. In those closing lines of <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, we saw how the church, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, were glad and generous people, praising God, having the goodwill of all of the people. And one of the most exciting things at the end of that verse was those words, and the Lord added to them daily those who were being saved. Next, we listened to an angry mob last week as Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, stood up to explain how uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, were pointing, pointing toward and leading to uh, the Messiah, and that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. We also saw how the crowd did not appreciate uh, the changes and, and the things that Stephen was reminding them of that God Himself had said, uh, in the time of the prophets, how they seized Stephen and stoned him. And in those final moments of Stephen's life, he lifted up his eyes and asked that the Lord would forgive them. And then he gave his spirit to the one who had called him. We have also been aware of how when the Spirit is moving with these preachers, they are echoing the life, the ministry, they're reminding us of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we get to sit in on another sermon. Uh, this sermon we find ourselves in the city of Athens, where Paul, that's the Saul that held the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Uh, his name is now Paul, and he is about to preach. You may already know about Saul how he was a persecutor of the church, how he was on his way to Damascus uh, to investigate, arrest, and if possible, execute those who were followers of Jesus Christ. There is that wonderful story in Acts chapter 9 of how Saul is blinded by Christ. Uh, Christ sends him uh, in a period of blindness uh, to be met by a man named Ananias. 
And Ananias, this man that we know very little about except for this instance with Saul, who would soon become Paul, lays his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you might regain your sight, and are you ready? And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Holy Spirit he was. Indeed. At that moment, Paul now begins to evangelize the whole known Roman world. Now he's already completed his first missionary journey. And by the time we catch up with Saul, Paul here in Athens, he's in the midst of his second missionary journey. So if you found Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 22, let's read together. So, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all of humanity life and breath and everything. And He made from one man and woman every nation of humankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of the human mind, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the one whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my first church out of seminary, both the Council of Elders and the Council of Deacons were all men, all males. At that church, the elders and the deacons meeting together constituted the governing board. Now the wives of the elders and the deacons would drop their husbands off at church for the meeting and then they would all go and gather together at a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant called Rebels and Redcoats. It was a restaurant built on the theme of the Revolutionary War. It was uh, an interesting experience for this young preacher, for as decisions were being made at the board meeting, they would occasionally need to be brought up again the following month. <laughs> on one such occasion, I asked the chair of the board, why are we revisiting this issue that I thought that everything had been settled last month? I'll never forget his response. He said, well, the rebels and redcoats disagreed. 
I soon learned that the best way to address issues of great importance was to start at the Rebels and Redcoats restaurant. I can't help but think about that experience every time I read this passage of Scripture in the book of Acts where Paul appears before a place called the Areopagus. Now, historians still argue about what the Areopagus actually was when Paul was there. The word Areopagus literally means the rock or the hill of Ares. Now, Ares was the Greek god of war, and legend maintained that it was on that particular rock, that particular hill, that the council of the Greek pagan gods tried Ares, for he had been accused of murdering Poseidon's son. It was a fantastic story, to say the least. For in pre-Christian times, it was the place that the elders of Athens, the city of Athens, would gather to listen to complaints and try serious cases of homicide, of arson, of disputes that uh, uh, surrounded olive trees and olive groves, as well as religious matters. Well, under Roman rule, the name of that hill was changed from Areopagus to Mars Hill. And while issues of law would now be tried according to Roman customs and by Roman officials, Rome still allowed each city that had been conquered to essentially govern its own domestic affairs. And so at this time, the Areopagus was primarily a place that had been relegated to a few elders of that city of Athens who would gather to settle local disputes that didn't uh, revolve around money or uh, rebellion and religious or moral matters. As I said, we're in this series, When the Spirit Moves. When the Spirit moves, we find ourselves and the right place at the right time. It is to this body, the Areopagus, that Paul was taken by the philosophers who had heard him preaching throughout the city streets of Athens. Now, it's interesting to note that up until this time, Paul had been traveling with two others, a man named Timothy and a man named Silas. Uh, Paul was always known for his bold preaching and Unfortunately, he would always get himself into compromising situations that were quite dangerous, and many people sought to take his life. And so the Christians had snuck Paul out of a city named Berea, which was in the northern part of Greece or Macedonia, and sneak him down to the city of Athens. Now, he was supposed to keep a low profile in Athens. Timothy and Silas would make their way to Athens. There they would pick Paul up and they would continue on their missionary journey. But as Paul waited, with nothing to do, locked up in his house, any similarities in your own experiences? Paul began to look around Athens and he became greatly dismayed. As a matter of fact, in chapter 17, verse 16 of the book of Acts, the text says that Paul's spirit was provoked. Or you might say, he was compelled to do something. And what he was provoked about was the idols that he saw everywhere in the city of Athens. Now, Athens is a pretty open-minded city at the time. And so they decided that even though this gospel, this message, this sermon 
that Paul was proclaiming was new to them, they wanted to hear what he had to say. And so they invited him to the Areopagus, where he could make his case. The Spirit had prepared everything. The persecution that Paul had been suffering in the northern part of the country is what brought Paul to Athens, to this moment when he is about to address this august body of local elders. The results of what seemed like God not blessing Paul's preaching in the north is what really led Paul to be in the right place, at the right time, for the right purpose. The Spirit had brought him to this moment. The Spirit is also bringing you. The Spirit is bringing me. The Spirit is bringing this congregation, your congregation, to the right place, at the right time, for the right reason. In a season that seems to be inconceivable, God is using His church to do what might be the impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. You know, in this season, I, like you, have been wrestling with the Spirit. It seems that God has been pushing all of us to reconsider what it means to be an Acts chapter 2 church. Not an Acts 29 church. Most of you may have heard of that particular movement. It's rather familiar in the movement of the contemporary church today. But I'm talking about an Acts 2 church. A church that's focused on the apostles' teachings. A church that is focused on true fellowship. A church that celebrates the centrality of the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. A church that is committed to prayer. A church that is attending together in the temple and breaking bread in their homes from Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. I've been reading a book entitled The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. It's written by a now-retired professor of history of Christianity at the University of Virginia. His name is Robert Louis Wilkin. I've been enjoying his book immensely. The other day, as I was about in the middle of it, I had this profound urge, this, this profound provocation, this, this compel, compulsion. I was compelled in my spirit to write this author a note. <laughs> well, how do you track down this author? How do you get a personal note to him? Well, with the help of Google and Encyclopedia.com, I was able to find Dr. Wilkins' email address. So I wrote to him. Here's what I said. Dr. Wilkin, too often we may not know the full impact of how God has used to inspire, educate, and call people into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm currently reading your book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, and I was compelled maybe I should have said provoked, to send you this email, hoping it would get to you. Thank you. I then offered some personal comments, and I closed that email with this. My intent is to simply thank you for your years of labor. They are an encouragement to this congregational pastor. Now one would think that that would be the end of it, 
But guess what? He wrote back. Now, I don't want to share all of the details publicly, but Dr. Wilkin has been in the hospital with a very serious condi- condition that is not COVID-19 related. So imagine, if you will, in the middle of a pandemic, being hospitalized for something other than COVID-19, worrying about both your condition and whether or not because you're in the hospital, you might catch this virus that is as of yet untreatable. And from his hospital bed, from his hospital bed he took the time to encourage this preacher in matters of faith, inspiration, and since he's a professor, a little bit of instruction. And the truth is that neither of us were the instigator. It was the Spirit that compelled, that provoked each of us to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. The right place at the right time, for the right reason. You see, when the Spirit moves, there is wisdom enough for all of us. Paul begins this sermon looking for commonalities with his audience. And this is a first in all of Scripture. This is the first time that we see a sermon being given to a polytheistic crowd. That is a crowd that believes in multiple gods. Paul tells this crowd that he notices that they are a, quote, religious people. That word religion has gotten a bad rap today in our society. The root of that word is the same uh, root from which we get the word ligament, which means to be tied to or to be tied together. It's really a good word. And yet in the English language, the word religion can mean grounded and connected to or tied to God, but it can also carry a meaning of superstition. Uh, An idea that if you do certain things that the deity can't do anything else but give you good things. And when that doesn't happen, for many, faith begins to break down. Well, the word that Paul uses here is as muddy of a word as the word religion is in our own English language and in our own culture. That word Paul uses carries both the idea of piety, and that's a good thing, as well as superstition, and that's a bad thing. And yet at the same time, it is this word that Paul begins to use to call them out of idolatry, which, by the way, is a really bad thing. Paul then quotes two rock stars of the ancient Greek culture, a guy named Epimenides and a guy named Aratus. Everybody knows them, right? Well, in the time that Paul is preaching, everyone does know who they are. They are distinguished poets. Uh, These are two men who had begun to set the tone and the idea that those things made by human hands cannot contain a deity. As a matter of fact, it is a deity that contains or holds us. In verse 28, Paul quotes Epimenides, who wrote a hymn to the pagan god Zeus. One of the lines in that hymn is, In him, that is Zeus, we live and move 
and have our being. Followed by Herodotus' poem where he celebrates the heavens and the stars and the constellations. And he declares in that poem that humanity is the offspring of God. Now the irony is that up until this point, Paul hasn't said anything that is controversial. He has drawn the already established understanding within Greek culture and Greek wisdom that deity, that the gods, that God is beyond what humans can contain and control. That it is our job to recognize that we have life, that we have what we have, that we are who we are because of the graciousness, maybe even the mercy of the divine. However, when the Spirit moves, the head and the heart come together. Well, when Paul mentions repentance in this passage, when he mentions judgment in this passage, and when he mentions resurrection, well, lines were beginning to be drawn in the sand. It's one thing to talk about general topics, isn't it? It's one thing to talk about humanity or the gods or God. But it's another thing to say that these heavenly things have practical importance, earthly significance. It's one thing to say these things are general topics that we can discuss or argue about. It's another thing to say that because of these things, you and I have a decision to make. It's something that relates to us personally. It is a declaration that the God whom Paul is preaching about is not only a God who created all things, even us, but it is a God who wants to come into us to take residence up in our life that in our death because of God's power we will be resurrected even as Jesus was raised from the dead now the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul as a matter of fact the word resurrection wasn't necessarily something strange to them but there was a significant difference the Greeks believed in the resurrection of the Spirit. Paul was talking about the resurrection of the body, as happened with Jesus. Now, there is an unspoken demand, I think, when we talk about the resurrection of the body. It suggests, well, a respect for the body, for life, for the earth, for things physical. It isn't two different things that so many of us think about, as the Greeks did. And yet today in our culture, many of us are able to separate the spirit from the body. That's not the biblical message. We, too easily, separate things that are spiritual from things that are physical. We assume that the earth is simply here to support our wants. Without the resurrection of the body, we begin to objectify the body. And we consider it only a vehicle through which we might receive our own selfish pleasure. Whether it's a disrespecting of our own body, 
or the body of others that we see in entertainment and pornography. We diminish the impact of our actions and what they have on others, how our opinions dehumanize others, how easy it is to say that, well, some may die, but most of the folks will live. It smacks in the face of Jesus who said that He would leave the 99 sheep to go and search for the one. It confounds what the world calls wisdom. That the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Whereas we Christians have for centuries sacrificed ourselves, saying that the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. That the good of the one is as important as the good of the many. In 1863, pro-Confederate marauders had massacred many of the citizens of Lawrence, Kansas. After they did that terrible deed, they fled to Missouri. Well, the truth is, is that there was plenty of murder and pillaging and wrongdoing on both sides of the state line between Kansas and Missouri by both pro-Confederate and pro-Union militias. When the posse came to Missouri to string up the, the, the marauders who had done the terrible deed, General, Schofield, G- General Schofield, who was commander of the Department of Missouri, a rank in the United States Army at the time, refused to allow these uh, vigilantes to come and exact justice. He was determined that the rule of law, the rule of order, was most important. In 1864, an organization known as the Committee of the Seventy, a group of uh, radically pro-union landowners and people of great respect, traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Lincoln. They told Lincoln how angry they were at the general's refusal to let popular justice be carried out. President Lincoln grieved the violence, but he was insistent that without the rule of law and order, true freedom and true unity of our nation would never be realized. He said something that day to that group of 70 men, a statement that has been remembered throughout history. Here's what he said. I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left. And that friend shall be down inside of me. You see, when the Spirit moves we realize that as the church, our only friend is Jesus Christ. And it is to Him that our loyalty rests. And it is in Him through which we have hope, even hope for eternal life. Who's your friend inside of you today?
Is it those human uh, needs and, and, and human presuppositions that we have that I'm the most important? Or is it Christ who has modeled for us the sacrifice of when He laid down His only life for all of those who would call upon Him? Brothers and sisters, there is truth. And that truth is found in God. And we know God through Jesus Christ. And we are able to discern that truth through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Who is it inside of you that makes the final decisions about how you and I live our lives? about what we're willing to give up for the safety and sanctity of others, of what we're willing to honor. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Would you invite Him, as President Lincoln would have said, deep inside of you, so that at the end of your days, you will be able to join your voice with that voice, which says sometimes when I stand for the things of God, it will put me at odds with other human beings. But when I lay down my life, I will have been faithful to the One deep inside of me. That is a life of worth. That is a life of meaning. Will you make that decision today? Allow me to ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him today as your Lord and Savior? If you have said yes to that, would you let us know that you've made that decision so that we can walk with you together as brothers and sisters in Christ knowing that at times it may put us at odds with the world, but we will always be consistent and loyal to the One deep inside us, because that's how the Spirit moves. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, for the One who made that decision today, who said yes to that question today, who is inviting you into their life, to be the one through which we and they move and live and have our being. The one who decides for us the truth that we will stake our lives, even our eternal life on. Pour out Your grace and mercy into them now. Remind them that in the times of difficulty and uncertainty, You will be there with them. Because as Your Spirit moves, You will take us to the right place at the right time for the right reason. As Your Spirit moves, You will give to us Your wisdom. As the Spirit moves, You will join our heads and our hearts so that we might be faithful to You. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.